RFU contains grown-up themes and occasional course language when they get carried away. Please take care while listening. Hi, professors. This is AJ Simmons, and I'm a sophomore majoring in studio arts at Clark University. Recommended for you this week is the film Cube 2 Hypercube from 2002, made in Canada and directed by Andre Sekula. The film stars a bunch of actors you've never heard of, and I'm recommending this film because it's one of the worst, most unexpected movies I've ever watched. Enjoy. This. This. This is recommended for you. For you. For you. A podcast where Clark University Screen Studies professors watch and discuss films suggested by Clark University students. I'm Hugh Mannon. I'm Soren Sorensen. Rock Sommer here. And this week we watched Cube 2, Hypercube. The film was suggested to us by A.J. Simmons, the only Clark University Screen Studies major, never to be a Clark University Screen Studies major. A.J. Simmons is certainly living in multiple realities, and I would insist that in one, she is a Screen Studies major. <laughs> That's probably true. In a hypercube reality, in a quadrangular oscillation of her own, she is a Screen Studies Anyway, so why do we think, uh, in all seriousness, or maybe not in all seriousness, why do we think AJ suggested this film for us this week? Bad movies, I think, is a formulation of some interest to the Clark student body. Uh, But what they mean by bad movies and why they watch them and why they think they watch them is not always clear or at least on the same page. So I'm wondering if maybe we want to talk about this sort of bad movie formulation um, and how and when we watch bad movies. What is this place? I don't know. You tell me how many rooms you've been in. I don't know. Five or six. What about you? Uh, this is my third. You sure you didn't see anyone else? No. Maybe you? No. So who are you? Who are you? When I heard AJ's introduction, I mean, it's pretty clear that the idea here is that this is this is for her a bad movie. But I actually kind of started to think, based on how she phrased it, that it kind of was one of these movies that's not so bad it's good and and kind of not good. But it's in this weird region between the two where it kind of doesn't actually occupy like so bad. It's good. There's plenty of so bad. It's good movies. And this is not one of those like this movie. You know, they say in Ghost World, the famous line about this isn't so bad. It's good. It's so bad that it's gone past good and it's back to bad again. And that's what this movie is. But it's also it's so singular um, that it, it takes place in this, you know, cube room that's backlit. And, and illuminated and that's where 99% of the action takes place in these multiple rooms and so it's it's not like a middling movie like like a you know just like a, sort of a typical crime thriller or a typical this or a typical that there's something really spectacularly odd about it which which you would think that on paper it would be a, a so bad it's good movie but yeah you're absolutely right that it's not it feels i think part of it it's because it's a single set movie right so they built one set and they pretend like it's multiple cubes but it's actually only one cube and because of that, like sing- like you said, this singular focus that we're constantly looking at the same, the same, the same, the same, it never kind of lapses into camp because it's too austere. I mean, if I can use that word, it's like too, uh, too set bound and too kind of like um, non-ostentatious to be camp. It doesn't involve enough stuff, frankly, to be camp. 
It's amazing that a film can be austere, but also have like a, a razor blade jungle gym that's floating in, in, in sort of the middle space of the, of the cube at one point. So I, I take your point, though. It is. It's austere. And yet it has these kind of um, horrific death sequences or kills, as, as a horror fan might call them. Yep. I wanted to ask Rox, and I think this relates to your uh, current course, right? Is this? Would you consider this a bad movie in a more like moral, ethical sense? Is this a harmful movie? No. Uh, well, <laughs> that was so. You know, that was so biting the way you said that. You're like, it's not even that. <laughs> you know, time is the fourth dimension, and I will never get it back. Uh, <laughs> n- <laughs> no, this is. You know, I am very much interested in bad movies or bad texts, bad objects. Uh, and I've been really moved lately by the scholarship of Kale Keegan, who is sort of advocating in the face of cancel culture writ large. Uh, and, you know, that's an overused term, but really in the face of critiques of media that has a long history perceived as being harmful, in particular in the context of his research to trans subjects, things like Rocky Horror Picture Show and Silence of the Lambs, uh, that instead of turning our backs on them, neglecting them in our scholarship and our studies, that there's really something there, there. And what we might, in fact, find, in addition to uh, harmful stereotypes, uh, is, a, is a study of a harmful society in and of itself, such that Silence of the Lambs is not really a film uh, about trans people whatsoever, but a film about transphobia and about the certain advancements of some minoritized subjects such as women and gay people uh, that also often or too often comes with the devaluing of the even queerer or more upsetting other in this in the case of Silence of the Lambs like trans women, right? Um, and that if we want to sort of Uh, move beyond or, um, you know, abolish systems that are horribly violent and oppressive that unfortunately, or, or perhaps fortunately, if you take a different stance, that means doing the very serious work of confronting uh, these violences and their mediation on screen. And so not a whole lot for me to say here. There's some very like cliche gender stereotypes so like again third movie for this podcast and problematic white women uh seems to be a reoccurring theme but i don't think studying it has a whole lot to teach us uh about misogyny (laughs) or patriarchy it's not really providing insights on sexism uh in 2002 i'm hard pressed to find that generous reading for myself you know thinking of bad objects uh, or or harmful cinema i was thinking of natural born killers and i think there was a time when john grisham was looking into suing oliver stone in the studio because natural born killers had caused uh, copycat killings and in fact one of them was was an associate or colleague of, of John Grisham's. So, so I think, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, so it's not, this film is not that kind of bad, right? So this is not the harmful object. So then the question is, it, does it even qualify as the bad object in terms of quality? And I don't even like to use that word. So I think it's wrong. Like if, if I kind of rewind the clock and think about like what got me into bad movies, I was very into bad movies and kind of ironic popular culture, especially when I was in college. 
Um, and if I think back to like what films sort of launched me in that direction, I mean, it's just the standard stuff like Plan 9 from Outer Space. So th- that's a different kind of bad. And I don't even think qu- saying it's qualitatively bad, that it's bad on quality is exactly the right way to look at it. Like it's it's certainly a transgressive film, but it's a film that's kind of enjoyable for its failures, certainly like camp um, and and works in that way. And camp is, of course, you know, only partly about so bad it's good. I mean, there's many other aspects, especially to what Sontag says about camp. But I don't think this fil- film meets that criterion really at all. Um, and I think the gauge of that is that my so bad it's good meter never left the, the desk, right? So like I'm, I'm watching this film and I'm waiting for it to be so bad it's good. And it never even hits me in that in that way. Absolutely. I'm blind, Kate. I'm a burden. You can move faster without me. Sasha, please, I know how you're feeling. No, you don't. You have no idea how I'm feeling. Look, I know this seems hopeless. It is hopeless! No, it's not! I'm gonna figure this out! (laughs) Figure it out. If I haven't figured it out, you sure as shit aren't going to. You know, Soren also mentioned another sort of bad movie, and that is sort of the generic or cliche genre film. And I think where I was hoping this film would go, and where I would certainly take immense or mediocre <laughs> amounts of pleasure if it had, was if it, you know, it, it, it triggered for me, you know, feelings or recollections of like an Agatha Christie mystery novel or the films based on her work where something like murder on the Orient Express or death on the Nile uh, is all these, these novels and their films are set in these very specific and limited physical spaces. And there are certain persons there. They often sort of stand in for representatives of a broader culture or community. And one of these people or more (laughs) committed the crime at hand. And as the detective knows, it's really a matter of discerning who these people are, what their relationship to this context is, and if you can do as much, you've solved the crime. Now, the joy of reading such novels is sort of this contradictory uh, relationship you have to the story being told, where you both know it is, in fact, solvable, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, all the information you need is there and is being presented to you, but the author is quite adroit at uh, throwing you some curveballs and working in misdirection and excessive information such that you're highly unlikely to solve the crime before the detective does. Um, Often this means there's many possible (laughs) solutions, and this is something that Jonathan Lynn's 1985 Clue film parodies, giving the viewer not one but three endings, which are all possible. and one of the joys in these detect in this sort of mystery fiction is that in the interim and in the uncertainty and the solving, you sort of get an insight or a study into human nature to our inherent deceitfulness and our guilt and our presumptions of people's identities and therefore what they're capable of. And this seems to, you know, cube two hypercube sets itself up 
as one of these. And I, I just want to yell at the characters, like, sit down, go around in a circle. Who are you? What is your relationship to this cube? And we'll puzzle this out. And it seems to sort of go in that direction, leaking out little bits of information along the way. But in fact, uh, it isn't solvable. Mm. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, yes. like, Yes. And that's the frustration. If there was, like, it would be so much more pleasurable if you finish it and go, oh, so because of this and he and yeah. she and da, da, da. And you really could have puzzled it out, but the filmmaker tricked you into mm. not seeing it. But that's that's not what this yeah. is. Really, really quick. Yeah. I just wanted to point out, it's interesting that the three films we've done so far really line up nicely in this respect, because the first film we did, uh, Twilight is a modern gothic romance, which is a sort of crime genre film. I care a lot, we're saying is neo-noir. And here we have the classical detective who done it. Boom, 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 which is really cool. <laughs> Seems pre-planned. I'm just so glad that I'm just so glad that Rox mentioned Agatha Christie and Clue, because um, I, I really would like to share one of my alternate titles for this film, and that's Clube. <laughs> um, and because I, I mean, this, this is this movie was Clue. I mean, yeah. I was expecting you know Colonel Mustard and Miss Scarlet and um, Peacock and all these different people to kind of burst out, and, and I didn't do it, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I, the, I mean, that movie is to me that film is so charming in, in a lot of ways, though, too, and and it does give you the very simple. Here's what happened, and by the way, it could have happened these other couple of ways as well. And and then this, you get to the end, and you know, you know, some we've been talking about things that surprised us about these films. It surprised me that I. I have no idea what happened, nor do I wish to know, um, which is not something that normally happens to me. Usually I'm confused and I want to read something about it. I'm confused and I don't care to read anything about it. <laughs> so, so the film basically gives up on itself. So it gets to the end and it sort of just throws in the towel and surrenders and says phase two terminated. And the film is over at that point. So it, it literally takes the mystery. And we even have this like Kaiser Soze, like Alex Trusk figure who is kind of this legendary hacker or something. I, I imagine kind of like an Elon Musk type Uber tech person. And, and it ends up being one of the It ends up being Sasha, one of the characters in the cube. But even that is just like, yeah. And then we're on to the end and, you know, uh, the, the main character escapes and phase two is terminated. Alex was clearly a, 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 a young woman and treated by Kate as, uh, as essentially like a 10-year-old girl the whole time. Um, you know, like, it's okay, we're going to be fine, and immediately like takes her under her wing. And is that because she's trying to steal her necklace and she's just going to be a mother to this girl who is just fine with it, by the way, even though she's clearly like 25 years old? It makes no sense. That made no sense to me. Sorry. And that's the thing, that, that, that move where like, oh, you were looking for a man. It's a woman. We get this in Agatha Christie, too but this does not pack the same punch possibly or largely because Kate succeeds in her mission so apparently it was totally okay to like coddle a 20 something year old blind girl because it does lead you to the truth uh, and the man the man you need to catch I thought it was just a little, it was a little much when she, she, she was helping Sasha climb. I mean, I, I know people who are blind and they can climb just fine. Uh, it's not, this isn't a difficult uh, skill to master for somebody that can't see as well as somebody else, right? Especially <laughs> given the, the kind of handily built in ladders that lead perfectly up to the windows that you need to climb through and out of, right? Also, I mean, it could have been our one clue that Kate was not who she claimed she was because she's a terrible therapist <laughs> enabling people like that rather than teaching them to, or like supporting 
increasing their like self empowerment. Yeah, you'd think she'd have some clue that like this person doesn't. We keep saying clue, and I was, well, she I has a clue. She has a clue. Pee wee, pee wee's yes, pee wee's word of the day. Every time we say clue, we just start screaming. Um, but no, I, I yeah, it, that, that was just very odd to me. I, I had a hard time with that with that part of it, which is. Yeah, it, it, you know, she would have probably had a little bit more sensitivity about people who are otherly abled, right? I mean, but clearly not. Yeah, yeah I mean, do, do you think this film also fails kind of along the lines of a philosophical, you know, mind? I'm not going to use the phrase, but the mind screw film, you know, the 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 film that exists to mess up your psychology. And I, I mean, I keep thinking that they've got all the philosophical pretensions in the world in this film, but it doesn't really seem to have the actual philosophical background to back it up in some way. Yeah, this is no matrix. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> I just want to say like Grady, um, he, Grady kind of is the audience in a way when he says, I really don't give a shit anymore. Yeah. And then he turns into a cannibal, like like it just immediately, you know, and, and it's just kind of like, it's almost like the screenwriter was like, what do we do here? We've, we've written ourselves into a corner or a, a cube as it were. Um, and, and like, you know, how, what do we do here? Well, we'll just have this, this flip a switch and make this car- this knife wielding guy turn into a cannibal because he just doesn't care anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly torn between these sort of philosophical musings about, you know, time space and what it means to occupy two spaces at once and quantum mechanics. And then questions like, where are the toilets? Like these people, they, they don't eat anything and they, they're in there for quite a while. And, you know, where are the toilets? And it, that's and here's here's how my thinking on this is really strange. Like to me, the ultimate nightmare is being locked in an elevator because you immediately that question, like within seconds, you're like, like, as soon as the elevator's stuck, I'm thinking I have to go to the bathroom like right now. Yes. And, it, and it's a it's a psychological trick that you're mind plays on you because you're you're caught up and now you've got to think about that otherwise you never would so they're locked in this and honestly um it it's just a completely you know it's the most obvious question in the world not to mention the fact that these rooms are white right so they look like bathrooms to begin with i'm immediately just go i just go there within minutes one of my first notes was food question mark water question mark toilets question mark and this is the thing. My detective brain was also like, okay, so there is no food, water, and toilets. What does that tell you, yes. people trapped in the cube? But they don't even ask that themselves. They don't themselves. ask that question. Right. I mean, it, it's an easy enough question to ask, and why not raise it? Why not, like, make it part of the part of the text? And I also think, you know, like, famously, right, and, and Rox, like, you and I have probably discussed this before. I mean, the famous thing with Psycho being the first film to show a toilet on screen in a major Hollywood film. I mean, notoriously, bathrooms are written out of Hollywood cinema. And here we're in the post-toilet era and we can absolutely <laughs> include one if we wanted to. Yet it's just never mentioned. It's like it doesn't exist. I was just going to say Mrs. Pally's entrance is she says, oh, hello, which is horrific, by the way. I mean, she's looking for the showers. Like that would have uh, been a perfect time to say, well, where's yeah. the toilet? And it's, you know, yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, if this is the post-toilet world, like where can I sign up? This is a utopia. But... <laughs> <laughs> your your reference to Psycho and its toilet also reminded me that there was perhaps a Psycho reference here. There are Psycho references in every piece of media, all the way to RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, but here we get it in, uh, what's his name? Here we get it in Jerry's wife's name in the watch inscribed to him his wife is named norma and i can't help thinking of norma and not thinking of psycho and mrs bates although i'm trying immediately to make a norma desmond connection too (laughs) but yeah norm norman is the is the 
crucial reference, seeming, seemingly. But Norman technical. and the his mother's name is Norma. That's right. Norman's mother's name is Norma. Right? Norman's mother's name is Norma. Right. And Norm, of course, is from Cheers. Good afternoon, everybody. Norm! How you doing, Norm? What do you know? Do you want me to hit you with like a, a, a hardcore theory that's going to last about five minutes and fizzle out? Yeah. So oh, here's my thought always. on the, the toilet thing. The toilet thing kind of takes me in this direction. So what if, so I just started to think, well, okay, so there's no toilets. Maybe they were, they're all wearing diapers. Now, I know you're thinking to yourself, that is just not part of this, right? But, like, I would ask you to consider, possibly, the idea that the the individual cube is sort of a metaphor for the crib. And if you think about, like, what film theory tells you about auditory senses and so forth, um, we're primarily visual creatures. But, of course, part of the problem with the mother's appearances and disappearances to the infant is that the child can hear what's going on off screen, off stage, and that's one of the reasons why cinema is so powerful in its off screen uses of sound. And here we've got these little cribs that they occupy and travel from one to the other to the other, but there's always these sounds and these weird noises and kind of weird images coming from outside the crib. And so, as I said, I have absolutely nowhere to go with that. I mean, we could probably take that a long distance if we wanted to, but like it just struck me as kind of like a crib bound, anxiety inducing adult world. It's like taking adults and throwing them into a crib and saying, you don't know what's outside your crib. You don't know what's beyond that wall. Meanwhile, we're living in our own Zoom cube world where our colleagues get to beam themselves practically right into our toilet slash crib. Absolutely right. I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> This film kind of does, uh, uh, it's doing a take on, or it's doing a play on THX 1138 with the kind of all white backgrounds. It's doing a kind of a play on the white rooms at the end of 2001, A Space Odyssey. So all that like stark, austere whiteness is a really cool thing in some ways in those films here. Like, I, I think it, it functions similarly, but in a much smaller, more constrained way. But the one thing I would give this film, um, maybe the only thing I would give this film is I kind of like the aesthetic of these gleaming white walls and then like real humans in front of them. And the humans in this film look like uniquely human. Like we see pores on people's faces. We see razor stubble up really close. Uh, we see people's clothing that's not in the best shape, right? And and I think there's a kind of like bodily humanity in this film that's really nicely offset by those white walls in the background. And I don't know if it's like, I, I don't know how intentional it is. It doesn't really make that much difference, but uh, never has a film been more sort of like real in its depiction of Canadians. <laughs> well, what, but what if this was a real, see, I, this is why I was like, kind of, I was, I was really excited when I saw the aesthetic and when I realized what it was and I was thinking, well, this is going to be like a really great piece of theater. And instead of a black box, we're going to be in a white box and that's okay. Like this is the set and I, I'm going to love this because this is all about the screenplay and I'm going to get so in enveloped in this story and I'm going to get really into it and it's going to be fun. And, and I, I know that it has this limitation, this formal limitation. Um, I, yeah, but I just didn't get there. I mean, I, I, I loved the music. Um, I'm trying to say some nice things about it now because you, cause you did that. So yeah, I, I, the music, um, I'm pretty sure there was a, there was an electric guitar present with um, an ebo, which is a device that vibrates the guitar strings, um, so you don't have to pick essentially. So you hold this little um, ebo, this little black vibrating device. I stop short of calling it a vibrator, um, and it vibrates the strings on the um, on the guitar, and you can fret the strings with your left hand, or your, if you're if you're left-handed, then your right hand. Um, and that that droney kind of ambient soundtrack, I actually really liked. It reminded me of a. Um, uh, Robert Fripp, uh, Brian Eno record called No Pussyfooting, which I really, really like. 
like. It reminds me, by the way, of, of a critical album of my youth, Big Country. Ah, yeah, which okay. they used Ebo extensively, right? Absolutely, yeah. but um, but I was also going to say I don't know if anybody um visited the IMDb for our friend uh, director Secula here. Um, are you aware of the of the films he was the director of photography on in the in the mid nineties? No, tell us. Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. <laughs> um, he I think he shot Hackers. Um, he shot American Psycho in 2000, I believe. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so so this is a <laughs> this is kind of a heavy hitter as far as cinematography, and he shot this. And I there are some there's some great cinematography in this film. So there were there were there were screen grabs or, or there were shots that I really really enjoyed or scenes or, or some editing that I, I liked. So I, as far as sound editing and music and cinematography, I was I was I was into it, but that was about it. I could watch it with this, I could sort of watch it and not pay attention to the fact that it's supposed to be a film. Yeah, it kind of hits me with that. Um, and this is a stereotype type and again this sounds particularly nasty but it it strikes me as the kind of um the kind of narrative you might expect a really gifted technician to write maybe yeah yeah sorry to say you know like i I mean i I think it's entirely possible to be super in tune with your craft in one dimension of filmmaking and then try to translate that up into like writing and direction and so forth and then all of a sudden it kind of falls flat i mean like if you wanted to like like it struck me that there's actually three different levels here of, of films that kind of take you from cube to cube to cube or place to place to place in this quasi pseudo philosophical way. And like, this is kind of, you know, a baseline. If you wanted to go a step up, there's a movie called escape room. I don't know if you've seen that. Not bad. I mean, you know, and I'm just assessing its quality in terms of like involvement and, you know, all the typical stuff. Is it entertaining? Kind of. Uh, it's loaded with stuff, though, so it's not like these austere cubes with nothing in them. They're like well, you know, fleshed out uh, studies and different sorts of rooms in a mansion and all that. And so it's a very full world where this is a very empty world. And then I would go like if you're going to go a list, it's something like Tarkovsky's Stalker, you know, which is it, it absolutely not about going cube to cube to cube. But it's the same sort of existential philosophical concerns. Um, who are we? Why are we here? Uh, how do we get out of the zone? What is the what is the zone? And characters talking about that sort of stuff. So there, you know, there are other movies that you, if you're into a cube like a cube two like experience, that you could go to and really get it full strength. You guys are sort of detailing, you know, what you each admired of this film, and I will say my favorite moment is undebatable, and that is the makeout moment. You really think this is all a dream? Definitely. In the real world, I'd never kiss you. Oh, really? Yeah. You're not my type. You're not my type either. Because, yeah, I'll I'll just be honest, you know? I know I only have so much time to live. I'm stuck in this horrid cube. There's no toilets. I'll pretty much make out with whoever, you know, I can bear to talk to for more than five minutes. Uh, So I think Max and Julia made a smart choice. They have the right idea. Uh, My hot take, if they want to hear it, is next time choose a room where time expands rather than dilates and make it last forever. And just so that I I assume very well said, and I I assume that most of the people who are listening to this are not going to dash out and watch Cube 2 Electric Boogaloo. But the thing is, like (laughs) when these two people get in a clench and and as as they smash and Soren, did you point? I don't I can't remember who pointed this out that it's really boyfriend, girlfriend, even though they haven't met 
before the film. Well, yeah, they, they don't they don't have any chemistry to speak of. Right. And then All they of a sudden, say, "Well, you're not my type," and it's kind of this funny, like, "No, no, you, huh, you're dumb." And then they then they're having these strange jump cuts as if they just went on a date or something. I, I don't know. It's just, and then they're naked and they're not, and it's just this weird. It's it's a it's sort of a short montage. It's it's a very strange sequence. Where did their diapers go? Yes, true. Uh, you would have seen the diapers. <laughs> you yeah, seen the yeah. diapers floating there. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, You've just completely no, invalidated I my mean, theory. But yes, yes, and if there no. were diapers, that would have actually turned on a segment of the audience I think probably that must be a fetish so yeah oh know. god I don't know it's kind of like rom-com energy where you're like I hate you I hate you okay let's make out <laughs> <laughs> like, like that's all we need is to despise each other well he's already really excited in the in the sort of Truman Show-esque kind of way where he thinks they're being they're being taped or something and and then he sees her for the first time in the in the beginning of the film um, yeah. I think it's the it's sort of like the beginning of act two or something and says there's a girl you know, oh like our, our ratings just yeah. went up or something right and then and then Kate says you should do you, are you gonna give her mouth to mouth and he said should I yeah. you know and it's like this kind and of lo gross, and behold you know. she's a woman in the red in a red dress but she is not the Matrix's woman in a red dress. It's true. No, no. And I'm convinced that that actor had never said the word subsidiary before <laughs> um, shooting this film. I, she's like, it's a subsidiary. You're not up against Cyber Thrill. They're just a subsidiary. As if subsidiary could mean almost anything in that scene. Like, you know, she's talking about the different companies. Also, um, as if anyway. he, as a coder who, like, already served time in prison for hacking the Pentagon, didn't know how to look up who this company is that owns the company that's suing him. Like, he knows how to Google. A subsidiary. It's right. a subsidiary. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and just uh, to, to put a cap on the making out scene, um, it doesn't end there. Ladies and gentlemen, because when you get past that scene, someone gazes into another box, right? Gazes into another cube. And what do they see? But the corpses of the two that were making out intertwined, twirling in space, looking frankly like poop. I don't know how else to describe that. Like, it's really brown. It, zero gravity poop. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I would say they're, they're Everyone's rocking. Everyone's worst nightmare. <laughs> they're, they're rocking some hard, like, Norma for Norma. <laughs> energy Oof. if this cube's a, a rockin don't come a knockin <laughs> so we could just talk about that whole scene for a half hour this could be a whole new series like rfu but we only deal with individual scenes and we talk about them for a half an hour <laughs> would we recommend this film um more than the previous two <laughs> Really interesting. What? What? I mean, I, I don't. I, I feel like Twilight. Everyone knows what Twilight is. They already have feelings about it. They're not gonna. They're not gonna discover it as a result of the podcast. I. I didn't really connect with. Um, I'm gonna be charitable and say I didn't connect with. It wasn't a good fit. Um, we, I care a lot. Uh, I almost said we care a lot by faith no more. I can't stop doing that. Um, and but this film, just because it takes place in this single, this this one set. That you, you'll never see, you've never seen before, and will never see again, even with the sequel and prequel. Um, it is, you know, it's almost worth watching just for that reason. It's like if I if I'm recommending Team America: World Police by Trey Parker and Matt Stone, it's all marionettes. So like, when are you going to see? You have to see it just because of that. You have to sort of give it up for them just because yeah. of the, the, the limited set and the formal restraint. I give this film a six zero six five nine. Of course, six zero six five nine. It's an expiration date. I would just say see it for the split screens that were not framed to be in, to be in split screens. Now, I don't even know how to explain this, right? It's like they overlaid in a process shot split screen images of the participants' past lives 
but they didn't bother to frame the original shot so that the person's face would be in frame so that the split screen just cuts them in half. It's not the most exciting thing to describe in a podcast. It's not the most exciting thing to see on the big screen either. Phase two is terminated. Phase two is terminated. Thanks. Phase two is terminated. Thanks, Thanks, AJ. AJ. Thanks, AJ. Recommended for you is a Clark University podcast. All opinions expressed are those of the faculty participants. If you'd like to recommend a film for an upcoming episode of RFU, you can leave a voicemail with this suggestion at 508-798-4355. 508-798-4355. The Recommended for You podcast is produced by Andrew Hart. Music by Jimmy Jackson. RFU logo by AJ Simmons. Cube 2 Cubalicious. Cube 2 Diaper Tube. I love cubes. Cube 2 QB QB Do Where Are You? What about Fallopian Cube? Cube 2 Here in My Cube, I'm the Safest of All. Jiffy Cube. <laughs> yeah. Cubies! Cubies!